0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A meeting between American and North Korean leaders would be a big deal for the U.S., for North Korea, potentially for the world. Such a meeting isn't merely an opportunity to negotiate. It's a bargaining chip in and of itself, says U.S. Senator from Colorado Cory Gardner. The Republican sits on the Foreign Relations Committee and chairs the subcommittee on East Asia. We spoke late Friday. I wonder if you've tried to put yourself in the shoes of the North Koreans uh, since word of a possible meeting emerged, what they might want out of engaging this time.
1: Well, I would hope that the people of North Korea would see what's happening in the south part uh, of the peninsula. They have economic prosperity. They have incredible uh, agriculture operations and trade operations. And that's what North Korea could have if they would just stop the, the work of this tyrannical regime.
0: Of course, South Korea has been to their South for a long time, prospering. What's different about this moment, do you think?
1: Well, it wasn't that long ago, really, that the North's economy was more prosperous than the South. And so over the past decades of Kim family rule, that's changed dramatically. And so part of the effort that I've undertaken is through legislation I've passed and work at the State Department, is to try to show the people of North Korea that there is a better way of life. That's through things like dropping thumb drives or broadcasts or television programming geared at North Koreans so they can see how life in, this, in South Korea and in the free world, what it's really like. Uh, and so those are the kinds of things that I hope that they will look to if this denuclearization occurs, things would get better.
0: Those computer drives, those broadcasts, those have occurred. That's part of what's already going on? That's correct. You've said that you think the North Koreans must have a blueprint for total denuclearization before any meeting. You think that should be in place uh, before the Trump administration agrees. Why would they do that for a meeting?
1: We need to have concrete and verifiable steps toward that denuclearization. That's why I've said that over and over again, because they have made promises in the past in 1994 that they would denuclearize. In 2005, they said they would abandon their nuclear program. Every time they reneged on their promises, they did not follow through. And so we need to see those concrete steps.
0: Do you think there's anything different about this moment, though?
1: I think the sanctions are working. In my conversations with the intelligence community and conversations with the State Department, we're seeing significant impact that the sanctions are having on North Korea. Kim Jong-un's cronies, the elites of Pyongyang, aren't able to get the luxury goods that they've become accustomed to. Things are harder to get by. Uh, We're hearing that uh, there's fuel lines. And he knows that this is going to hold as long as he continues to violate international law.
0: How's the White House handling this in your estimation? And I'll note that it's without an ambassador in place.
1: First, we need an ambassador uh, desperately in South Korea. But uh, I think the maximum pressure doctrine that uh, that has been put in place by Congress uh, is working. It's starting to prove that sanctions can work. And that's what the president has pursued. Abandoning the failed doctrine of strategic patience is important. I also, though, believe that this is a very high level, uh, high interest meeting. Uh, There's a lot hanging on this meeting because if, as I have said, there is room left on the diplomatic runway to work with North Korea, a meeting with the president, that takes up a lot of that runway space that's remaining, because if it doesn't go well, what is there aside from presidential negotiations that we have left? So that's why there's so much at stake with this meeting.
0: That is the meeting itself is a bargaining chip. I'd like to move on to the fact that last week, the president signed an order to impose steep tariffs on some imports of aluminum and steel. What have you heard so far from Coloradans about how they will be directly affected. Who's reached out to you?
1: Well, I've heard from a number of uh, people from agricultural interests who are concerned about retaliatory tariffs that could be placed on agricultural products to manufacturers like Trinidad Benham, headquartered in Denver, that makes uh, aluminum foil products. Uh, if you look at Coors and uh, Left Hand uh, Brewing Company and so many other uh, ball uh, canning operations, very concerned about aluminum. This morning I spoke with Conrad Winkler, the CEO of Everest Steel in Pueblo, Colorado, about his concern with the tariffs, and NAFTA as well, uh, if we were to pull out of that, he's very concerned.
0: What are you telling uh, and, them? What are you telling them?
1: Yeah, I, I, that I first of all, I oppose the tariffs. I think it's a, the wrong economic direction to take. We do need fair trade deals, yes, but I'm afraid a, a tariff actually penalizes the ones that we're trying to help. Uh, so I, I do think it's a tax on the American people. I'm telling them that we'll continue to engage with the White House. There's possible legislative solutions that we have to turn to obviously engaging with the White House to find out what the tariffs mean. There's exclusions, uh, talking about exempting Canada and Mexico and other countries applying. I hope the White House over the coming days will narrowly tailor any action they're taking to those countries that are truly causing problems when it comes to the trade issues at stake.
0: Of course, anything that Congress carves out as an exception would have to be signed by the president. So it doesn't sound like that would be an easy path.
1: Well, that's certainly the system that our founders set up. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) Students across Colorado and across the country will walk out of their classrooms later this week to demonstrate how fed up they are with gun violence. Senator Gardner, is there one change to gun laws in this country that you could get behind?
1: Well, look, I think we have to make sure that we are preventing violence from happening. What happened in Parkland, what's happened in Sutherland Springs, what's happened in Aurora, uh, is is unacceptable.
0: Preventing violence yeah, and, is a, a laudable yeah. goal. How would you How would you do it?
1: Yeah. So there's a couple things that we ought to do. We ought to take advantage of the language that we passed in the 21st Century Cures Act that would provide more training to counselors at schools to help identify those who could carry out such a heinous act, who could commit harm against their fellow students. Uh, we need to. I've had a, a law enforcement roundtable in Colorado last week where we met with sheriffs and law enforcement from around the state who talked about some of the health barriers that are preventing them from helping those who may be at risk of committing harm to their communities. And those are things that we can look at. So I, I hope that we have a broad discussion in this community, in this country, about what we need to do to prevent harm. We have constitutional rights at stake. We have to protect those rights of law-abiding citizens. But we have to make sure that we can prevent uh, this kind of harm from happening.
0: So nowhere in that answer did you point to the guns themselves, the tool that is used. Is there anything you'd change about gun laws in particular?
1: Well, if there's things that we need to do to make sure that uh, the Air Force, for instance, is, uh, or the, the government is failing to forward information to background checks, that's important that we do that. We have to provide due process in these circumstances. So we should look at that. That's what we should do. But we have to be very careful that we're we're providing due process, making sure that information is there, and then acting on mental health issues that seem to be very common in this. The other thing we have to point out is where was the failure in law enforcement, especially in places like Florida, where the sheriff's office was apparently contacted by somebody over 40 times could that have prevented uh, this act? So there's a lot of information that we need, a lot of angles that we can take. But uh, I, I think it's important that we have these very, very difficult conversations.
0: That is U.S. Senator from Colorado, Republican Cory Gardner, recorded late Friday. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, Gardner has benefited greatly from National Rifle Association spending. They come to that conclusion by adding up direct NRA support, independent spending in his races, and money spent to defeat Gardner's opponents since his first congressional race in 2010 for a grand total of about $3.8 million. Gardner's response?
1: If they spent money uh, outside of the campaign, uh, then that's how they've spent their money. But Uh, What is true is the NRA opposed my campaign in 2010, supported a Democrat uh, uh, for Congress. I don't uh, take the, the belief that I do because of the NRA. I take the belief because of the Constitution.
0: Indeed, in 2010, the National Rifle Association supported his opponent, incumbent Betsy Markey. But Gardner got their endorsement in his 2014 Senate race, and the NRA's Political Action Committee today gives Gardner an A rating. Now, one of the most polarizing ideas for dealing with school shootings is to arm teachers. Well, year after year, House Minority Leader Patrick Neville sponsors a bill to allow for that. Neville was a student at Columbine High School when it was attacked in 1999. And we talked to the Republican state lawmaker recently about arming school staff, which the legislature has again rejected. Ken Toltz heard our interview. Toltz co-founded Safe Campus Colorado, which is trying to restrict Colorado's concealed carry law on college campuses in particular. Each year, Toltz says he testifies against Neville's bill and notices who's not at the hearing.
1: Where are all the members of the education community? Why are they not there? I've talked specifically about organizations such as the Colorado Association of School Boards, the Colorado Association of School Executives. None of those organizations ever take a position on his bill because he does not consult with them to ask them for their input on something that would affect their members every single day in Colorado.
0: We asked Representative Neville for a response. His spokesman replied, quote, he's had so much support from individual teachers, he didn't feel that consulting with those organizations was necessary. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When it comes to how the federal government treats marijuana, especially in states like Colorado that have legalized it, we might just be at a watershed moment. Joining us from Washington to explain is reporter Matt Laszlo, who covers Congress. And hi, Matt. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Why might this month in particular be so critical?
2: Well, if you remember, Congress still has to fund the government, you know, this perpetual fight up here. But included in this long-term funding bill um, for the government, about 18 senators are asking to uh, protect Marijuana uh, businesses. And this goes back to what Attorney General Jeff Sessions tried to do. And he's uh, asked to rescind this thing called – or he has rescinded this thing called the coal memo. But he's also asked to wind back uh, protections that Congress put in that wouldn't allow the Department of Justice or the DEA to go in and enforce the federal prohibition on marijuana. And so – uh, all these senators are working behind the scenes to try to uh, get that protection uh, re extended uh, to tie Sessions' hands again. And th- the changes we're seeing on this now, you know, this really became an issue for uh, Senator Cory Gardner, who we just heard, um, and he came out in front on this, opposing Sessions. And then you also saw other senators in states like Virginia, Tim Kaine. They have no marijuana uh, policy in Virginia, and yet Tim Kaine is a part of this effort to protect legal marijuana businesses. So now, because of Sessions' actions, you're actually seeing more support for these policies.
0: In fact, we had some news in Colorado marijuana politics uh, in this vein late last week, correct?
2: Yeah, I talked with uh, Colorado Springs Republican Doug Lamborn, and it's interesting. He's very anti-marijuana, but he told us that he actually now wants to see marijuana rescheduled so that we can have more and better research on it.
3: And you can't do that right now when it's a level, a category one controlled substance. So at least let's take the step of allowing marijuana to be available to researchers. Um, Now, whether we go beyond that, I'm not sure I could support going beyond that.
2: Now, years ago, a couple years ago, Lamborn and other Republicans would never have wanted to reschedule marijuana. Hmm. So it's really a watershed moment for people like Lamborn to say, hey, let's uh, take it out of Category 1 status, which makes it, Puts weed on the same level as heroin or LSD. And he says, hey, let's do research because this might have medical benefits. And a lot of people say it does.
0: And it's interesting because Lamborn was actually in support of rescinding that Cole memo that sort of offered some, some comfort to states. Uh, beyond Lamborn, what's the state of marijuana politics on Capitol Hill right now?
2: Well, it's actually really interesting. There's I've been covering this issue for about 10, 11 years. And five, six years ago, no one would want to talk to me. They would just laugh at me like, oh, you want to talk about marijuana? You're a pothead. Ah, ha ha. Now everyone's talking about it because it's really sweeping the nation and because Jeff Sessions is uh, anti, so anti-marijuana. And even this weekend, President Trump called for executing drug dealers. <laughs> so they're very out of touch with Congress on this. Um, but I talked with Colorado Republican Mike Kaufman, and he said that people who are trying to downplay um, Sessions rescinding this coal memo, which told district attorneys to not prioritize uh, marijuana enforcement, uh, Kaufman says that's actually having a big impact at home because businesses aren't uh, going to want to invest. What it's done is it's put insecurity
4: and uncertainty into the industry. And, and whenever you have any business where there's uncertainty about its future, uh, the,
2: the net result is uh, investment dries up uh, in that business. And again, Kaufman is not a pro-pot lawmaker, but for him, he's looking at this from the revenue and he's looking to protect his local businesses. Marijuana is legal in Colorado, and that's his voters. You wrote recently in Rolling Stone about this, a lot of business
0: interests, particularly when it comes to banking for marijuana businesses, tax relief as well. But Matt, I'll note that there haven't been any votes on marijuana in Congress really this whole session, have there?
2: No. And that's interesting. The the memo or the, the amendment that they're going to try to extend in the spending bill passed a couple years ago with a lot of Republicans supporting it. Uh, but Speaker Paul Ryan and um, there's this thing called the Rules Committee. It's kind of archaic, but the speaker controls it. And any bill that goes to the House floor uh, has to go through the Rules Committee. And what they've done is really closed down any... Uh, amendment debates, anything. And marijuana has fallen prey to that. And Colorado Republican Ken Buck is pretty annoyed with this party's leadership, but he also says Democrats are to blame as well. Leadership
0: doesn't, but a lot of us do. I'm, I'm frankly on both sides of the issue. I have some friends from uh, Georgia and Alabama who are opposed to legalizing marijuana, and, and they want to move forward and make sure that uh, their voice is heard on this issue. And, and likewise, I, I want to give states the opportunity to. Try uh, uh, sort of a, uh, a new uh, regulation scheme uh, with with a drug like marijuana,
2: and isn't that interesting, Congressman Buck? There is saying, "Hey, Republican leaders, bring this bill up." He says, "My friends in the South they want to oppose this; let them vote against it. Us in Colorado, we might want to uh, support these bills, but let's have an open debate." You know, the medical marijuana regimes are really sweeping the nation. We're going to see it uh, come on in about five to eight states. There might be some more recreational stuff that we see this fall, um, people following in Colorado's footsteps. So it's really interesting that um, Republicans are now pushing their party leaders to want votes on this. And I also caught up with Colorado Democrat Diana DeGette. And she's saying that Speaker Ryan, who, remember, also ran as vice presidential candidate on the GOP ticket a few years ago, she's saying he's now out of touch with even Republican voters. I think what, what, what Speaker Ryan and the Republican leadership have to realize is a lot of states have legalized it either for every purpose or for medicinal purposes, and their constituents voted for. In Colorado, when we voted on the um, legalization of marijuana, the, the Republican counties had as high a vote for the amendment as as like Denver and Boulder. And now remember, we now have recreational marijuana legal in Republican Alaska, in uh, Purple, Massachusetts, in um, Red, Maine um, and in Nevada. So this is no longer just what people saw as a Democratic or a very liberal or progressive issue. It's now a conservative issue in many parts of the country.
0: Thanks so much for being with us, Matt. Thank you. Reporter Matt Laszlo from Washington, D.C., talking with us about cannabis and Capitol Hill. He's one of the wealthiest people in America. Colorado entrepreneur Philip Anschutz started his career in oil and gas, moved into real estate and railroads. Now he's a titan in music and sports. Anschutz rarely grants interviews, but he agreed to talk to us about one subject, a personal passion of his, the founding of our country and its expansion west.
4: The odds that this political experiment of these the United States of America would succeed were very low at that point. These few little colonies clinging to the eastern seaboard, numbering no more than four million people, surrounded by Russia, France, England, Spain, four huge, at that point in time, superpowers, all with standing armies and navies and prior claims to the lands surrounding these few colonies. So what happened? I mean, how come the course of history went as it did? Anschutz says the answer comes down to
0: good fortune. Lots of lucky breaks and visionary people. He picks 100 of them stretching over centuries for his book, Out Where the West Begins.
4: There are so many people in this book. People, I dare say, even though you very well may be a strong student of history, are probably names you never heard of.
0: I want to mention that you're also a collector of Western art. You have a collection of paintings that would make a museum blush. And in this book, you take on the role of historian with with authority. I, I wonder where this passion for Western history comes from.
4: Uh, well, let me uh, back up a bit. A friend of mine introduced me recently as a historian. While I appreciated the promotion, I'm really not a historian. I'm a hobbyist, admittedly a uh, committed Hobbyist, an enthusiastic hobbyist, but not a historian. I'd love to be someday. Yeah. But I've always loved history as a little boy. My mother was a school teacher. She taught eight grades in a country schoolhouse in a very remote part of Kansas where I grew up. But anyway, my mother interested me uh, as a child in music and history and art. Whenever I can, I always congratulate young parents and grandparents, uh, which I am, who drag their children through uh, old cathedrals or take them to symphonies or art museums or so forth. Don't give up don't give up uh, <laughs> even if even because if you... occasionally it works <laughs> <laughs> even if they're kicking and screaming <laughs> even if don't they're give kicking up. and screaming.
0: Uh, I, I wonder if you remember much about that, that one-room schoolhouse your mother taught it. Uh
4: Well, uh, actually, I located it some years ago, picked it up uh, or had it moved uh, to the little state teacher's college, which she went to as a young lady, and had it placed on that campus at the state teacher's college in Hayes, Kansas. So that's where the, that little schoolhouse now resides
0: And still standing,
4: thus. Still standing.
0: As Anschutz said, many of the historical figures in his new book, Out Where the West Begins, are not well known. But he does start with a very familiar name, Thomas Jefferson.
4: Jefferson, without a doubt, knew more about the American West than probably any other living individual at the time. He'd made it his business to understand as much as there was to understand about the American West. Secondly, he had a vision. He believed that this was the future of the country and possibly to an extent would impact the world. And thirdly, he was in a position and had the means to have an effect and did. Economically, of course, because he had some financial means, but much more important politically because he obviously had the political position. You say uh, he knew about as much as you could know
0: back then. And there was a lot about the West that was sort of unknowable, wasn't there?
4: In the year 1800, if you drew a line west of the Mississippi, all the way to the Pacific, hardly anyone knew anything west of that line. It had never really been visited. By white people. Uh, by, uh, By white people. The first expeditions which, by the way, Jefferson was responsible for sending out, Uh, William and Clark, the Fremont expeditions. Uh, After that, there were a whole series of expeditions that were sent out to gather information uh, about uh, who occupied the lands, what kind of lands were they, what was the topography, what was the geography, were there trails that could be found, was the land occupiable, could it be farmed? I mean, just The list of questions were endless. So he had the vision of what this could become. I might also add, he believed that the American West would take a thousand years to be settled. A thousand? A thousand years to be settled. Now, obviously he was wrong. It was settled, developed, created in about a hundred years to a far greater extent than Jefferson ever could have imagined. And against all odds, the country progressed from almost nothing because nothing was known about it to what became the fourth or fifth largest industrial power in the world. Just that portion west of the Mississippi standing on its own to the Pacific. Nothing like that had ever happened before in the annals of history and certainly in such a short time frame. The one thing that they uh, didn't quite have right was that the West, all these huge expanse of lands were already occupied (laughs) and claimed by indigenous uh, peoples, uh, Indian tribes, many, many of them. There were leaders uh, as well among those tribes.
0: Anschutz focuses on several of those leaders, including Tecumseh, a Shawnee military and political leader. In the early 1800s, he organized a confederation of tribes to resist white settlements. Anschutz also highlights a woman named Sister Blandina Segale.
4: She was a young nun who came west. She was a member of the Order of the Sisters of Charity. But one of the side stories about her And Sisters of Charity were very active in creating schools and academies and hospitals and orphanages throughout the Southwest, led by her. One of the side stories is she found Billy the Kid along the side of the road who had been shot and left behind by his gang, nursed him back to health, and became long-term friends uh, maybe friends is too strong a word, but uh, advisors to Billy the Kid to try and get him to change his life. The book also includes a Colorado rabbi, Rabbi William Friedman, uh, who who came from Denver, uh, was a uh, rabbi, of, first rabbi of Denver's Temple Emmanuel, very Just, still,
0: still in existence today.
4: Yes, still in existence, but a very unusual individual. But the reason he's in the book is as an example of of the things in the community, the people coming together and acting on behalf of the less fortunate and other people who needed help. And he founded uh, the National Jewish Hospital. Uh, one of the founding principles is if you didn't have money, you didn't have to pay. They provided free health care. He joined— for other ministers of different faiths catholic uh, episcopalian congregationalist methodist to start something called the denver community chest to give and and support people in need that small little undertaking grew and now it's called united way and operates all over the country oh my goodness another fellow that i've always found of interest Owen Wister. Owen Wister uh, helped to create the early images of the American West for people who lived in the East, had no idea what went on in the West or what kind of people populated it. Owen Wister came West looking for a place to write his first book. For some odd reason, he got off the train in a place called Medicine Bow, And there he wrote his first novel called The Virginian. It was the first Western novel ever written. Didn't that become a movie, too? Uh, Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. And it elevated the cowboy into this kind of iconic hero. As a little boy, I read that book. Uh, My father owned the Medicine Bow Ranch Company. So I spent a lot of time around Medicine Bow.
0: It must have been pretty, pretty special to be reading about the place where you were. Absolutely. Phil Anschutz, thank you for being with us.
4: Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me. I've loved writing these books. I might add, I do have a day job in writing books, isn't it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Colorado billionaire and writer Philip Anschutz. He rarely grants interviews, but agreed to talk to us about his latest book, Out Where the West Begins, Volume 2. It's about 100 people who played a pivotal role in Western expansion. Still to come, when did the lights turn on in the universe? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Astronomers have detected the first stars ever to shine in the universe more than 13 billion years ago. But no one's actually seen them. Instead, scientists picked up their radio waves. Doug Duncan is director emeritus of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder and joins us regularly to talk about space science. Welcome back to the program, Doug.
5: Good to be back, Ryan. How how important is this discovery? It's quite a remarkable discovery. It's the first time that we've been able to see all the stuff in the universe before any star or any galaxy had ever formed. You know, archeologists like to dig deeper and deeper and deeper to go as far back in time as they can and understand how the world we live in came to be. And astronomers like to go back in time. So we understand how the whole universe that we live in came to be. And of course we have the advantage that the further out into space you look, Mm. the further back in time you're looking Because it takes the radiation a long time to reach us here on the Earth. Okay,
0: so whereas the archaeologists go deeper down into the soil, the astronomers go deeper out, further out into the universe. Exactly, yeah. Okay. Set this stage for us. So
5: the period after the Big Bang, right? But before stars formed. Right. It's a really interesting series of things that happened in our universe. So try and imagine the whole universe— I think our listeners know the universe is expanding. Yeah. So the further back in space you go, the smaller and smaller and smaller it was. And right after the Big Bang, the whole universe is like it filled with nuclear explosions everywhere. It's so hot, no matter can even exist, mm. and it's tiny. Okay, and so, uh, but it is it's expanding, and as the universe expands, it cools. And for probably three, four hundred thousand years, it was still so hot and so dense, you couldn't even see the whole universe was glowing. But as it continued to expand, it cooled off and eventually space got dark and it stayed dark and it stayed dark and it stayed dark for millions and millions of years. And we wondered How long until stars and galaxies would form? Came along. This
0: is often called the cosmic dark ages, this period.
5: Because nothing was making light. Nothing was shining. That's right.
0: Okay. So lights turning on means stars, something called cosmic dawn. And how did these first stars form? This is what we now have a better grasp on.
5: Right. So this is very hard to imagine, but imagine our entire universe near the beginning, so small- atomic-sized small, that it was part of the quantum world. Hmm. And the quantum mechanics tells you that if you look really closely, the whole universe has little fluctuations in it. And so as the universe expanded, the the quantum fluctuations spread. If the whole universe was uniform, nothing would have happened. It would be just, you know, an unchanging soup. We wouldn't be here. But because some places were denser than others— Gravity would pull more and more material there, and in between would be voids, and the voids became the empty space, and the concentrated areas became the stars and the galaxies, the first stars. So this unevenness,
0: if you will, leads to stars? Yes. Okay, and thus to cosmic dawn.
5: Yes, and so uh, the very first stars, and we're we're actually trying to make computer models of what the first stars would have been like. They were probably a lot larger than the sun, and they burned very brightly, and they changed the whole universe because the lights turned on. They were larger than the sun, much, formidable maybe formidable stars. Yeah. Exactly. Okay.
0: The sun is also a star, of course. But, yes. Uh, well, this discovery was published in the journal Nature, and one of the authors is Raul Monsalve, who is an experimental cosmologist at the University of Colorado Boulder.
5: Isn't that wonderful, by the way, just yes. that term? You get to experiment with the whole universe we live in. Yes,
0: I want to be an experimental cosmologist. Uh, these scientists uh, didn't use a powerful space telescope like Hubble to see these far reaches of our universe. Instead, they worked with something that looks more like a card table in the middle of... An Australian desert. Yes. Well,
5: what is this? How does it work? <laughs> well, I think maybe uh, quite a few of our listeners have seen pictures of radio telescopes. Uh-huh. If you saw that movie, I really liked uh, Contact that Carl Sagan wrote. There are all these radio telescopes kind of coordinatedly looking at, out into the universe. This is a little different. Instead of looking at one target, we're looking at the glow of the whole universe a very, very long time ago. So the signal is coming from every direction all over the sky. Hmm. It's just a very, very weak signal. So instead of a big radio dish pointing at something, they have a little radio receiver about the size of a card table. But it's very, very sensitive. I mean, it's got to be. Super sensitive. I mean, how did these scientists
0: know they found the radio wave signature of the first stars
5: and not something else? Well, fortunately, we know that before there were stars or galaxies, the whole universe was mostly hydrogen. And hydrogen gas gives off radio waves at a very specific frequency. So each each element or each molecule has its own frequencies. So we know the frequency to tune into pretty much. Mm. The real challenge was all the other radio broadcasts that get in the way because the universe is really, really faint. And some other things are really strong. Just as a, for instance, we hope that Colorado Public Radio on the <laughs> FM dial is pretty strong, right? We yes. like people to listen in. Unfortunately, we radio astronomers don't too much appreciate that CPR is broadcasting at a pretty near frequency as the universe.
0: I don't, I like, there's a poetry to that that I appreciate. If you're just tuning in, this is Colorado Matters on CPR News, and we're talking about uh, the discovery, the uh, reception of signals that indicate when the first stars formed in the universe. And how long after the Big Bang, which you described earlier, did stars start to form according to these new findings based on this?
5: this Well, now now that we have received this signal, it's the first detection. So it's tentative. So maybe we'll talk in a couple of minutes how it could be confirmed. But it seems to indicate that maybe 180 million years after the Big Bang, was when stars and then galaxies started to form. And I don't know if 180 million sounds long to most listeners, but it's a drop in the bucket of cosmic time. The whole universe is about 14 billion years since it started expanding. And so if the first stars happened 180 or 200 million years after the beginning, that tells us pretty quickly in our universe when the stars and galaxies started To form. It didn't take that long, in other words. As astronomers would say. Now, jumping back to this little card table receiver, and and not to besmirch the good name of CPR, uh, we did, these astronomers took the radio telescope to a place where there isn't much in the way of Earth made radio. They took it, well, actually, let me interrupt myself. In the movie Contact, all of our big radio telescopes are in the New Mexico desert. This receiver was in the Western Australian desert, which is even less inhabited than New Mexico. So you're presumably not getting a lot of interference, and you can more
0: clearly read the signal from the early parts of the universe.
5: That's right. And a really interesting aspect of this, which is a little subtle, but but I think understandable, is the following. Hydrogen always broadcasts on the same frequency just like I always listen to CPR on 91.5 where I live. But the universe is expanding. And as it does, those wavelengths of, of radio waves coming to us through the universe expand or get stretched. And so the frequency shifts a little bit. Mm. And the further out into space you look, the more the stretching. So by taking a radio telescope and tuning it to different frequencies, just like you would tune a radio at home, you're actually listening to different parts of the universe. Different ages. Different epochs back there in time. That's Mm. right. Now, you said that this still needs to be
0: confirmed that they have made this contact from somewhere around 13 billion years ago.
5: That's right. And astronomers at the University of Colorado have been studying this very question. For about a decade, uh, one astronomer, Jack Burns, has come up with a research group, and NASA is funding it to figure out the best ways to pick up the radio from the early universe. And I'll toss a challenge to our listeners, okay? okay. Try and imagine a place that has even less radio interference than the Australian desert or the American desert, some place where you absolutely can't hear the radio, hear the telescope from Earth, Hint, hint. Uh, could it could it be uh, not on
0: Earth? Absolutely. Okay, and I think this is why. Uh, also at CU, there's a team
5: looking at getting a radio telescope on. The far side of the moon. The moon, yes. Okay. If you think about it, one side of the moon always faces the Earth. That means the other side, the far side, and not to be confused with the dark side, but the far side of the moon never sees Earth and therefore is completely insulated from all of the interference. So if if you you could, could get a telescope there, you'd be in just a nice, clear That's right, And I think we'll do that in two steps. The easiest way is to put a satellite in orbit around the moon, and then every time it's behind the moon, it Uh can look at the universe. But ultimately, we'd like a radio telescope on the far side of the moon, and we're experimenting, actually, with taking a remote-control rover, and it would drive across the moon, and it would unroll a radio antenna, okay? Kind of like a a roll of uh, uh, kitchen towels or something but bigger and made of radio antenna and you just unspool it on the moon and it lives there and looks at the universe.
0: So that's in the works.
5: It's in in okay. the design and testing phase right
0: now. Well, thanks for sharing these facts about the early universe with us. Always
5: a pleasure, Ryan.
0: Doug Duncan teaches astronomy at the University of Colorado and joins us regularly to discuss space science. This time with news that scientists have detected the first stars. Ever to form in our universe. The Blind Cafe returns to Boulder this week. Visitors are plunged into darkness, no cell phones to light the way. Dining in the dark is actually a social experiment, and we checked out the first Blind Cafe in 2016. CPR Stephanie Wolf went and Nathan Heffel narrates.
6: Hey guys, how you doing? My name is Rosh. I'm the founder of the Blind Cafe. Really excited to have you guys here. I'm gonna make a few announcements so we can get you guys into the dark.
5: A couple ground rules
6: is As we ask that you guys don't bring any light into the dark. Sure. So that means you need to turn off
3: your cell phones 100%. Rosh's full name is Brian Roshinlow. Our audio equipment did not meet his ground rules. It glows. So Stephanie's recorder had to get covered up with duct tape and heavy fabric. That made for less-than-ideal recording conditions, and you may hear that in the sound quality, especially after she entered the dark room in the cafe.
6: We need you guys to line up here. in a big, long line. you right there, yeah. shoulder, the person in front of you.
3: For the waiters that night, this environment wasn't so foreign. They were visually impaired. They confidently led diners to their tables. The Blind Cafe includes dinner, dessert, and live music, all in pitch darkness. It now tours the country, popping up in cities including San Francisco, Austin, and Chicago. This event was at a chapel in Boulder. Here again is Brian Rushinlow.
5: We
6: actually started it here, upstairs, in the upstairs chapel, um, almost six years ago.
3: He was inspired by a cafe in the dark of Iceland and says the experience was so profound he wanted to bring it to the U.S. The goal is to get people outside their comfort zones, and it did for our producer. She said the first 15 minutes was unnerving.
6: My orientation is all
3: off. Another goal is to help people understand what it's like to have poor or no eyesight. At one point, diners asked the waiters questions, like how they read people when they can't see their faces. Server, Greg Hill.
5: Well, I think we read expression as blind people through like the
0: tone of the voice and through like a vibe that somebody sends off, right? So you can sort of tell if somebody's like uptight from how they're speaking or a particular like feeling
5: you get from them.
3: The evening ended with a performance by Rosh and Lowe's band. He urged people to get up and dance. It was too dark to tell who was dancing, but many felt uninhibited enough to sing along. And the man behind the first Blind Café joins me now, Brian Rauschenlough. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Hi, good to be here. You first got the idea for your Blind Café after going to a café in the dark in Reykjavik, Iceland. Tell me about that experience.
6: Um, I was on tour as a songwriter, play guitar and sing, and I was traveling across Europe and I was in Reykjavik performing concerts uh, all across Europe. Yeah. And I was walking down the street in Reykjavik, Iceland, and there was this uh, girl, she had this laminated she had this table in front of her with laminated cards on it and Icelandic words okay and it had braille printed on the on the laminated cards and sure. i was like what's this and she goes oh it's a cafe in the dark i said what does that mean and she yeah. goes she goes oh well you know it's all dark in there and the waiters are blind so i had to pay for whatever i wanted outside in the light
3: before you she, went in yeah, yeah. And, she, and
6: she gave me a little card with the word coffee on it with the braille and i was supposed to give that to the blind waiter when i got inside so I, she brings she sends me down this long dark hallway by myself And pushes me in and starts closing the door. And I'm like, well, how do I find my seat? And she goes, the waiter will find you. (laughs) And she gave me this cane. She goes, here, use this. So she closed the door, and I'm in this long, dark hallway. And it's really, really dark. And I start making my way all the way down the hallway using the cane against the floor, how I've seen blind folks do it before. And I open up another door, and it it was just completely pitch dark. It was almost like jumping into cold water, that sense of like, (gasps) you know, like a shock. Um, everybody's chatting away in Icelandic, there's dishes clanking everywhere. Um, I literally couldn't see anything. After I had a moment of kind of panic, I thought, okay, I can do this. So I use the cane and I start scraping across the ground and I go into the room and I bumped into this table. I could tell that there were people at the table and I asked them if there's any extra chairs and they said, we don't know. <laughs> it's dark, it's, it's black. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I ended up hanging out in the dark with these folks that um, for a couple hours and I had no idea if they were tall, black, white. In a wheelchair or blind. So it was like this amazing opportunity to meet people socially without my visual conditioning. So I thought this would be an interesting way to kind of help build community, break down social barriers.
3: And there are restaurants in California and New York that, that have offered dining in the dark. How is this different from uh, those cafes and the one you hadn't recommended?
6: Uh, well, the dining in the dark experiences are just like a regular restaurant experience except for you're in the dark and you have your own private little table and your waiter's blind, or sometimes they don't have blind waiters. Sometimes they have infrared goggles. Our event is like an epic experience. Ours is the Blind Cafe experience. So when you arrive, there's like 100 people waiting to get into the dark. It's almost like being in a, a big event. Once we've given you the rules of the game, had your fo- cell phones off, we've talked about how to you know, um, participate in the event – my blind friends then lead the guests into the pitch-dark room through this darkness tunnel that we create out of fabric. And everybody actually sits down at large tables. So if you came with a friend, you'd be paired up with six other people, an eight-person table, and you literally have to break bread together with your community.
3: You say being in the dark at your events can have a visceral feeling for people. Some people get scared or Mm -hmm. or very uncomfortable, especially like you did that first five or 10 minutes when you were in that Icelandic cafe. Why do you think dining and interacting in the dark can can be this visceral? Uh,
6: There's something about the darkness that interrupts our habitual ways of kind of checking out and not being present. So a lot of times we're thinking about what we're gonna, where we're going to be or what, we've, what we did. And we're kind of in our heads. We're kind of in the future or the past. Yeah. Or if we start to feel uncomfortable, we check our cell phones. But in the dark, you don't have that. Whatever you're doing, whether you're trying to eat with a fork or trying to relate with somebody at the table or participating in a conversation with the blind folks or being part of the music, you have to be very acute and in the moment because you suddenly you don't know how to do everything. You don't know how to eat with a fork. You try to eat with a fork because there's no food on your on your fork, and so there's something that kind of it just interrupts our comfort zone, and make puts us in a situation where we don't quite know what to do, and so we have to pay attention more, and then that's the opportunity, that's the window right there to um, help people grow.
3: Is it really about opening up your heart and opening up your mind, but then also uh, raising awareness about people who, who have lost their sight? It's kind of this balance that you're playing. Is that right?
6: Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So okay. the Blind Cafe is not a blind organization necessarily. We're using the darkness to create positive and social experiences, to see how we can open up and learn more about each other without our visual conditioning, our social etiquette, and our cell phones. Because we're just – people are just starving to f- feel – real, connected, intimate um, connection.
0: That is Brian Rochelow speaking with CPR's Nathan Heffel. He's the founder of The Blind Cafe, which returns to Boulder's E-Town Hall this weekend. Finally today, my colleague Vic Vela is working on a story ahead of the Rockies opener later this month, and he wants your help. Yeah, Ryan, I wonder what questions fans have about the team this season. You know, the Rockies were a real surprise last year and ended up making the playoffs for the first time since 2009. But what does the new season bring? Rockies fans, please send us an email to news at CPR.org and we may talk about it. All right, news at CPR.org for your questions and comments about the Rockies. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.